if you're black in America and you're conscious, you better have multiple cultures or else yeah. you won't survive. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. I'm Christopher Ryan. Glad to be with you today. Uh, luckily, I am not paid by the federal government, so I am able to still function despite the fact that our government is being held hostage by terrorists, political terrorists who, like all terrorists, like all fundamentalists, say it's my way or I'm taking my ball and going home. So here we are, you know, it's, uh, I think, who was it, Bill Maher who called them the, uh, the American Taliban. I got into a conversation with someone earlier about this. They were saying, yeah, but the left does the same thing, you know, when they don't get what they want, they do, but they don't do the same thing because the left, for better or worse, what we call the left, which of course isn't always the left, but let's call it the progressive wing of whatever party or the progressive um, contingent of a population. They're built in uh, self-limiting mechanisms. You know, when on the left, when uh, even even extreme, what uh, the government calls eco terrorists, right, like Earth First, who advocate um, destroying logging equipment, spiking trees, you know, doing shit that'll. Uh, stop roads being built into wilderness areas and uh, sabotaging construction projects for high-tension power lines or whatever it is that there are dams and things like that. They, even them, uh, even they insist upon all sorts of measures to try to make sure people aren't hurt. Like even they'll put up signs so the loggers know like, hey, this, this grove has been spiked. Don't go in there with your chainsaws. You might get hurt, right? Um, that doesn't happen on the right. On the right, they seem, and again, I'm using right-left in a uh, in, in a lazy sort of way. What I mean is extremists, and the extremists tend to be on the right. They're more unified. They're more persistent. You know, it's like, what the fuck, man? Obamacare's a law. It passed every every hurdle that laws have to pass to become laws give it up move on but no we're still gonna have to listen to their bullshit anyway sorry i shouldn't get that political i probably lost my four right-wing hardcore republican listeners i'm sorry sorry to see you go um but anyway it's uh it's that kind of a podcast episode today i'm a little pissed off i gotta say i don't know pissed off isn't the word i'm 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 sad. I'm hurt. I'm grieving a little bit. Um, a man who uh, I work with, who's my editor, actually, he edited Sex at Dawn at Harper and then uh, moved over to Simon & Schuster shortly after our book came out. And um, and I'm, gonna, I'm writing the next book, uh, Civilized to Death, uh, with him. Uh, his name is Ben Lonin. He's my editor, but he's become a friend over the years. He's, you know, sort of uh, held my hand as I went from a guy teaching English in Barcelona to uh, whatever sort of, you know, minor fame and frenzy I'm experiencing now, uh, which 
you know, from my perspective is pretty intense, but uh, it's good to have someone there who's seen it happen before and, and sort of could guide me. Anyway, Ben was out yesterday uh, taking his dog for a walk in the park, literally, Riverside Park in New York on a beautiful morning. And uh, some deranged maniac with uh, scissors in his hands started stabbing people. Stabbed a woman in the neck, stabbed a guy who was out with his baby. Uh, And he um, stabbed Ben in the stomach. And um, that's all I really know. Um, My agent sent uh, a link to uh, an article in the New York Times talking about it. And um, that's all I know. I know he's in the hospital. And uh, as far as I know, he's doing okay. But um, who knows? Who knows? Um, Anyway, you know, what it makes me think is... There's a line, I don't know if it's in the Bible or where it is, but uh, a line about how a society can be judged by how it treats its weakest members. And uh, our society is falling apart, folks. I don't, I don't mean to sound like Rush Limbaugh here, but things are, get, things are bad and they're just going to keep getting worse until you know, we have one of those... I'm I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore cultural moments, which the sooner it comes, the better. You know, we're uh, (laughs) the guy who stabbed him is mentally ill by definition. If you're running around in a park stabbing, you know, women out for a jog and guys walking their dogs and a, a man with a baby in a carriage. And he stabbed the baby, too, by the way. As far as I know, nobody's died. But uh what the fuck? That's a sick person. You know, it's not an evil person. I don't even know if I believe in e- evil because everyone who does nasty shit has been the victim of nasty shit, whether it's nasty shit coming from other people or just, you know, nasty, a nasty deal of the deck and you ended up with a fucked up hand. You know, you've got. I mean, schizophrenia is genetic. It happens. It's, you know, it happens just like, um, you know, cancer. So, uh, you know, I, I, and in fact, it's interesting, Ben's husband, there was a line from him in the article saying that uh, Ben almost feels bad for the guy who did this. And the thing is, I know Ben, and he probably really does feel bad for the guy who did this, even while he's bleeding, even while he's in surgery and lying in a hospital in New York. He's smart enough and has a big enough perspective that he knows this isn't about him, or it's not even really about that guy. It's about a society that ignores the mentally ill. It's happy to give them guns. Thank God that guy didn't have a gun, right? But happy to give them guns, happy to uh, throw them in prison, but not happy to um, let them see a psychiatrist and get some support, give them a place to live, take care of them, give them the minimum so that they don't lose their shit. I just saw... Uh, along the same lines, there's a soaring number of elderly U.S. women live in extreme poverty. According to the National Women's Law Center, the number of elderly U.S. women who live in extreme poverty has gone up abruptly since last year. 
18% increase in the population of women over 65 who are living on less than $5,500 per year. Think about that. We've got the highest percentage of our population in prison of any country. We've got one of the highest levels of child poverty. I think it's like a third of American children are living in poverty. And then if you actually look at what our definition of poverty is, it's ridiculous because they play all these number games with it. It's like a family of four with 20 grand a year or something. Try living on that. Try, you know, kids. I mean, it's insane. And so there's this one tiny step in the direction of taking care of the poor, taking care of the vulnerable and the Republicans, the tea, tea baggers want to shut down the government, and they're the ones who call themselves Christians. I don't know, man. The meek may not inherit the world, but if we don't take care of them, they might freak out and stab a dear friend. So we're in this together. Uh, and the sooner we, we realize that, the better off we're going to be. All right. On a slightly lighter topic. Uh, anyway, oh, before I, I move on from that, if Ben Lonin ever listens to this or anyone who knows him, please let him know we're thinking of him. Uh, the ads. Let's talk about ads. Uh, I've got a new sponsor amazingly uh wonderfully is uh, squarespace which is cool because i actually use squarespace if you go to chrisryanphd.com which i hope you will you'll see my site which was set up on squarespace my experience i think is probably pretty typical i um i decided it was time to have a serious kind of you know professionally designed web page uh i hired a friend of a friend who does web design and gave her a deposit of half of what it was which i think her total price was like fifteen hundred two thousand dollars or something so i gave her half the money and um and then we went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And the deeper we got into it, the more I realized that it's messed up. Like every time I want to add some content, I'm going to have to contact her. She, you know, she's busy. She's on vacation, whatever. It's not going to happen. And then there's a certain point where it's like I'm just hassling her. Hey, could you change the font on that? Could you make that a little bigger? Could you move the picture to the left? And either she's going to start charging me for that or I'm just going to have to say, yeah, screw it. And the thing is, a web page is a dynamic thing. It's a it's a garden. It's it's not a it's not a painting. You paint it and finish it. You know, it's it. You're always adding. You're always changing. You're always, you know making it better, making it cooler, making it more recent, whatever. So the whole idea of going through a web designer is kind of a non-starter, which I didn't realize till I was trying to go through a web designer. So eventually I just abandoned it and, you know, let her, uh, whatever, keep the money. She had already done work. Uh, but uh, my friend Kyle told me about Squarespace. And I went on there and looked around. You can go on, I think you got a 30-day period where you can... Uh, dick around on the site without even giving them your credit card anything so there's no money you just set up an account and start you know see how it works it's great like imagine if you could uh you know before you buy a car you can have it for a month check it out cool right so uh obviously they they're under the impression and i think rightly so that the more time you spend there the more impressed you're going to be and the more likely it is that you will sign up 
Um, it's it's really excellent. Anyway, so I went in, started messing around. Kyle helped me out initially, but really, it's pretty self-explanatory. It's drag and drop stuff, and uh, and they've got really beautiful templates. They're all automatically resized and reconfigured for uh, iPhones and Android and whatever whatever's out there. It shows up beautifully. And uh, it's very easy to get in and do stuff. They've got different uh, account levels. I think the cheapest one is like eight bucks a month or something. It's very, very reasonable. You can leave at any time. You you get a free URL. They'll um, register your URL. I think for the first year. Um, uh, anyway, it's it's great. It's it's called Squarespace. Squarespace. The all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website or online portfolio. Free trial, 10% off. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer card TANGENT, T-A-N-G-E-N-T, 10, the number, 10, TANGENT10. And then they'll know you came from me. And they'll be happy about that and maybe extend their sponsorship, which would be very cool. So if you're checking, if you're thinking about doing a website, check it out. Like I say, you got 30 days to, to dick around on there, do what you want. No problem. Um, I don't know. Do women dick around? Maybe there, there's a, a gender specific, uh, neutral term I should have used there. But uh, it's very cool. Check it out. Feralaudio.com, as always, wonderful place. Some of you are probably listening to this through feralaudio.com. I, uh, they host my site, uh, my t- uh, podcast there, as well as a whole bunch of really good ones. Harmontown, of course, the great Duncan Trussell Family Hour. I just two days ago sat down with Duncan and we recorded an epic two-hour um, conversation and we could have gone another five hours. I mean, we were, that, that's he's such a cool guy. I just really love hanging out with him and uh you know how it is some people you, you talk to and it's like you got to keep pushing to keep it going and some people it's just you know like getting in a wagon at the top of a mountain you just fly uh that's duncan so um anyway feralaudio.com uh you can check out the duncan trussell family hour there uh, what else? The Amazon affiliate link on my page at uh, chrisryanphd.com. If you dig these uh, podcasts, you can listen to them through my site. You can also download them through my site. Um, and that's kind of cool because on the site I put up uh, photos of the guests and there's a place where you can comment. And, you know, it's not really a forum, but people can talk to each other through the comment section. And that's always cool to see people engaging and hanging out. Uh, so you can use my Amazon affiliate link on the website it's the click on the bonobos balls and that'll take you into amazon and then you just navigate to whatever you wanted to buy and i get three percent or something like that which supports the podcast what else you can donate there's a donate button there uh as always many thanks to carcy blanton for letting us use her smoke alarm theme song you can check her out at carcyblanton.com and if you want to get in touch with me you can uh write to me at tangentialpodcast at gmail.com and of course as always the great t-shirt company suredesigntshirts.com uh, the shirt we've got for sale right now is designed by Levi Greenacres. You can see his work at levigreenacres.com. Uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep it kind of minimal with the sure design thing because I want to play uh, Duncan Trussell. One, 
I mean, even if you don't have time to listen to lots of podcasts, which I don't, honestly, you got to listen to Duncan's intros. He is so, I mean, I don't know. His intros are like, they're like, uh, it's a new art form. It's it's not stand up comedy. It's it's part stand up comedy. It's part monologue. It's part just sort of free flow stream of consciousness insanity. It's it's incredible. So I'm gonna play uh, him doing uh, the feral. Or sorry, the uh, short design T-shirt riff because uh, short design supports him as well. Uh, because he, it's just, it's. I feel like a schlub trying to even talk about it after listening to the way he does it. It's insane. So I'm going to play that, and hopefully that's going to get you to go and check out his podcast if you haven't already heard it. Uh, as I said, um, it's early October. I just did, uh, he just put up the conversation we had. He put it up uh, today, I think. So you'll see, I've been on there three times or something, but the one where I admit to a very embarrassing situation in India, uh, (laughs) I don't know. That's the problem with him. You start talking and then it's like, oh, geez, did I tell that story? Wow. Shouldn't have done that. Uh, Yeah. So I'm going to play, I'm going to play that and hopefully that'll take you right in and you'll start checking out his podcast because he's great. Now, my guest today is Carl Hart. Uh, Dr. Carl Hart, who is my favorite kind of person. He's a person who moves between worlds. Uh, in hunter-gatherer societies, they call this person a shaman. Um, you know, as some of you, if you've listened to this podcast or you know a little bit about my life, I've spent as much time as possible moving between worlds. I've lived all over the world and uh, tried to... Um, you know, try tried to spend as much time out of my own comfort zone as I could. Uh, the great mythologist Joseph Campbell called this detribalization, and he saw it as one of the essential stages of um, seeking wisdom, where you 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 first recognize that you are of a tribe, and then you get out of that tribe, and then you can look back on it and say, "Oh, all the stuff I thought was just the way it is, that was really." just what that particular tribe, that culture, that family, that economic class, that race, whatever, you know, we're all, we're in all these, each of us is a nexus of all these intersecting fields of identity. And uh, you got to try to pull yourself out of that or you never realize it. You know, they say the fish are the last to feel wet or something like that. It's like, yeah, you don't know you're wet if you're a fish, right? It's like you don't know you're kind of, uh, you've got assumptions about black people. If if you're just a white guy who just didn't really have any black friends, you know, it's like, well, I don't know, black people are like that. Well, no, dude, meet some black people. You find out there are all kinds of black people, you know, just like there are all kinds of white people and Jewish people and everything else. Anyway, I don't mean to be obvious here, but Carl uh, Hart's a, a very interesting case of a guy who moves between worlds. He um, he grew up in Miami. Here, I'll read something from uh, from his 
He wrote a book called High Price, and it's a, a memoir of his life. That's how interesting his life is. And he's he's fifty or something, maybe forty five. He's and uh, so he's not like an old person looking back on life. It's but he's had a hell of a trip so far. And his book is called High Price: a Neuroscientist Journey of Self Discovery that challenges everything you know about drugs and society. High Price is the harrowing and inspiring memoir of neuroscientist Carl Hart, a man who grew up in one of Miami's toughest neighborhoods and determined to make a difference as an adult, tirelessly applies his scientific training to help save real lives. Um, In this provocative and eye-opening memoir, Dr. Carl Hart recalls his journey of self-discovery, how he escaped a life of crime and drugs and avoided becoming one of the crack addicts he now studies. Interweaving past and present, Hart goes beyond the hype as he examines the relationship between drugs and pleasure, choice, and motivation, both in the brain and in society. His findings shed new light on common ideas about race, poverty, and drugs, and explain why current policies are failing. Uh, So he's a cool guy. He's a cool guy, he's a smart guy, and he's a serious guy. Uh, I saw him on uh, Real Time with Bill Maher just this last week, and uh, it was interesting, very interesting. He, he, you know, Bill Maher's famously, uh, you know, a stoner, and he likes being cool and, you know, passing himself off a bit as, uh, you know, cool guy. And... Um, it was just interesting when they were rolling the credits at the end, I could see how uncomfortable Carl was and how out of place he felt. And, uh, and not that he did, didn't do a great job. He, he was articulate and, and his TV presence is great. But you could just see this guy is not comfortable with any kind of bullshit. And I think you'll hear that in our interview. He's uh, very forthcoming, very serious, and very um, focused on the truth. And he's cutting through the bullshit, and it's a beautiful thing to see. He's he's the kind of guy we need in academia, on television, or whatever role uh, he can play. It's going to be helpful. So. It was an honor to meet him, and I hope you enjoy this podcast as much as I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for listening. Number one, as always, the Duncan Trussell Family Hour is sponsored by the beloved Shore Design T-Shirts. Shore Design T-Shirts is located at shoredesigntshirts.com, and oh dear God, do they make such soft and beautiful shirts. Using the spinneret of technology, Shore Design T-Shirts blast soft, beautiful T-Shirts into our dimension, which are worn by women, men, and babies alike. These shirts are so very soft, you will feel as though you are being embraced by swarms of orgasm-inducing nanobots, tickling your nervous system and bringing you into such states of deep ecstasy that you will want nothing more than to go out into the world and help your fellow man or woman shortdesigntshirts.com they too are bringing us closer to the state of paradise all right so carl hart uh you are i mean i should let you introduce yourself probably but the reason i was really interested in in sitting down to talk with you is that 
I know you're you've been working in the trenches of academic research and publishing on addiction and uh, human beings' relationships with what we call drugs uh, for a long time. But you have really started. Uh, your star is rising meteorically, although meteors come down. I've never understood why things rise meteorically, but in any case. <laughs> Uh, I've seen you on like three documentaries in the last couple of months. Uh, most recently, were you on the Sanjay Gupta thing about marijuana? Yeah. Right. And I saw you in something. The uh, house I lived in. The house I lived in. Exactly. Yeah. That was fantastic. Yeah. yeah. So you're you're sort of becoming the face of the, the hip young dude who sort of who, who knows the academic side of things. And you've got the scientific credibility, but you also know what it's like in the streets to live with drugs and to... And to question the narrative that drugs are what cause crime and drugs are what cause violence and all these things. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I wrote the book High Price. And yeah. in High Price, I tried to bring all this together, right. kind of show people that uh, give my story right. and uh, my, my anecdotal sort of upbringing with the relationship with drugs and drug policy. And look at it also from the academic side, uh, what I'm currently doing now, studying drugs, uh, the effects of drugs on people under carefully controlled conditions and trying to understand what's real and what's uh, just hysteria, just exaggerations. And what I discovered in High Price is that most of what we think we know about drugs is hysteria, hysteria-based or faith-based and not evidence-based. And so um, just trying to tell the public. And the public is actually interested because they've been lied to for so long mm. and they've been talked to like children about drugs. Um, just like a number of things in our society that are potentially controversial. Uh, whenever you get it in the hands of the government or people with a simple story, when we have complicated behavior, complex behavior, I'm trying to tell the public to be distrustful and get your own education and think about it from a critical perspective. So. And how are you going to survive? <laughs> I mean, how are you going to... Let me rephrase that. I certainly recognize what you're talking about because, in a way, that's what we tried to do in Sex at Dawn, talking about sexuality and saying, look, there are all sorts of vested interests behind a false narrative of human sexual behavior and evolution that have led you to believe things that cause huge amounts of unnecessary suffering. You know, in our case with the sexuality, we're talking about guilt and shame associated with everything from masturbation to uh, being attracted to someone other than your socially sanctioned sex partner. You know, like, oh, you, there must be something wrong with your marriage, something wrong with you, whatever. So, but we're not academics. And I think the reason we were able to write this book, I mean, we've got some credentials, you know, Casilda's an MD, I've got a PhD from a third rate school, I'm certainly not <laughs> teaching at Columbia Med School. So I guess what I'm what I'm curious about is I feel like the freedom that we had to write that book and to, to speak the truth as we see it anyway, that um, offends a lot of vested interests is that we weren't part of the we weren't in the game, so we can't get kicked out of the game, really. Well, You're in the game. Are well, you? That's a great point. You know, like, my goal is not to stay in the game. I mean, if your goal is to stay in the game, yeah, you worry about that. But my goal is to live the best life I can live as mm. honestly as I can. And 
that gold also has a lot to do with poor people and people who haven't had a voice. Right. And so I, my loyalties are to them first. You know, right. uh, that's number one. And number two, I'm not really concerned about how I'm being judged today. I'm more concerned about how history will judge me. And so... That's how it is. This is how I see it. Uh, I played the game to the highest levels, and I played by the rules, and I'm using those same rules to, just like I was taught, I'm using those rules to tell the truth, just like I was taught. So you're going to be the the Muhammad Ali of academia. <laughs> I, I don't know about I don't know about that. Ali was the greatest, yeah. and I certainly don't feel like I'm anywhere near the greatest. No, I understand. So, I don't mean to, to yeah, you know yeah. put you in a bad spot there, but when you were talking, I was thinking about people who play the game but transcend the game. You know, and they're very good at the game, but they understand so many people who whatever game they're in, whether it's making money or getting famous or whatever it is, that's it. They they just want to win that game. They don't understand that that the whole point of that game is to put you in a position where you can say something that's true and a lot of people will hear it. That's what tenure is all about, right? Uh, you have tenure. Yeah, and good point. When you're tenured, it's the first time in my life where I felt like I was actually a free man. Uh, there are so nice. many people in academe or in the world who aren't free. Yeah. I am a free man. Oh, you do have tenure. I have tenure. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, that's good to know. How long have you had it? I had tenure since 2009, and about that same time, I decided that I would write this book. Yeah, that's what I was going to get at. Yeah. But, you know, you play the game for so long, yeah. even though when people get tenured, they have been reinforced for yeah. behaving in a certain way. They don't know how to behave in other ways. But quite frankly, I have always had multiple lives. You yeah. know, my life wasn't only the life that the public sees or right. my people at my universities, my colleagues. I have... A, you know, a really um, interesting, eclectic life that people, yeah. uh, some people will be horrified. Other You're people almost like an exchange student from another culture, in a way. Well, if you're black in America and you're conscious, you better have multiple cultures or else yeah. you won't survive. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, one of the points we made in, in Sex at Dawn is that so much research in sexuality is based on American undergraduates. Right, because right. those the right. grad students have to publish. They've got all these grad students there, so they're there. And and the point we made was, you know, an American undergraduate in many ways has much more in common than with a college student in Kenya or in Japan or wherever than that kid in Kenya has with people living in the countryside in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Or we could say that American college student has with somebody you know living in on the wrong side of the tracks in Detroit or. Miami or wherever it is, the cultural chasm is as great within a country as it is, you know, sure. between countries. I mean, you point, you, you, you raise a really important issue, particularly as it relates to even drug studies. For example, much about what, much about what we know in terms of drugs is from animal studies, animal right. researchers, and also people who have a little understanding of actual drug-taking behavior in the natural ecology and the natural environment. And so just like those studies that have looked at undergraduates for sex and a wide range of things, first of all, undergraduates, those are not the people that you want to be basing your uh, lifestyle on, like something as important as sex, yeah. because you're going to have some limited sort of expressions of your sexuality. 
policy right. if that's the case. The same is true when we look at drugs. And when you say if you have an animal researcher who has never seen a person use drugs in the real world, they have these incredible caricatures of what drug drug uh, be, uh, drug users look like, act like, right. behave like, and that's what's have been perpetuated in the American sort of public. And that's the view that we have. And it's so inconsistent with reality. You're reminding me of some of the early research with uh, primates in terms of sexuality. Um, Until the late 70s, virtually all scientists claim that no, you know, they've got this list of things that are unique about humans. One of the, that keep getting disproven one after the other, tool use and communication and, you know, whatever, the list goes on forever. One of the things on that list was that humans were the only species where the female has orgasm. There were no female researchers. So as soon as the female researchers in the 70s, you know, started getting their PhDs in primatology and, you know, different fields where they were working with primates the women were like well of course they're having orgasm just look at that look at that you know female macaque that she's having an orgasm right but the guys couldn't see it so in the same way you know you look at your line of research where so much so many of the people doing research are you know upper class white you know, and so the crack. Well, when they they don't know anyone who's ever used crack, right? That's so they get this idea based on what on media, and who's in the media? Upper class white people, you know. So it's it's yeah, I can see what you're saying. The perpetuation of these false stereotypes, these these, these stereotypes, these myths become re- reified, and then they become yeah. the facts. Well, they the, get uh, scientific validation. That's right, but they're not scientifically true. So, yeah, as you know, in science, if you uh, you find what you're looking for. And if right. you ask those narrow questions and that's all you're looking for, that's what you're going to find. Right. doesn't necessarily mean that's the reality and that's the scope of this behavior. Have you ever heard of Andrew Weil? Of course. Yeah. yeah. He's, yeah. A, he's a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, and in some ways you remind me of him a little bit um, in the sense that, you know, he went to all the best schools and you know, Harvard and, you know, did his residency at Mass General and, you know, just got his card punched everywhere. Um, but the whole time he was questioning the sort of dominant paradigm because he used marijuana and he knew people who used marijuana. So when he got to the National Institute of Health, he was like, let's look at, first of all, let's do double blind studies because none of these drug studies were double blind, right? Which is like, oh, great. If you're trying to find that marijuana, you know, impairs cognitive functioning and you know who smoked the marijuana and who had the placebo. Anyway. Well, you know, uh, you, you raise an important point. Um, there are a number of us in the academy who know that what what's being perpetuated is inappropriate uh, exaggerations a number of us know that but this fact kind of keep people from saying that this fact 90 percent of the research that is funded for this type of work is funded by the national institute on drug abuse and the national national institute on drug abuse's mission is to focus on the bad things that happen with drugs right so if you want to get funded your questions uh focus on the bad things that uh, happen when people... And that's Nora Volkow? Nora is the director of of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, but the mission is even bigger than her. She's just a director. Wasn't her grandfather Leon Trotsky? That's right. That's right. right. There are some bizarre connections going on there. I mean, no guilt by association. I'm just saying that's a pretty bizarre connection. Yeah, that's exactly (laughs) right. I mean... uh, and you know, speaking of those kind of bizarre connections, the the sort of 
godfather of modern advertising is a guy named, he just died recently, uh, Edward Bernays. Like, he was the guy who started the first focus groups in the 20s. You know, that whole idea of trying things out before, you know, before you actually go into production. His, one of his most famous uh, campaigns was uh, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, co-opting feminism to get women Virginia to smoke. Slams, yeah. Un- yeah. I mean, you think about the evil, you know, in that, the evil cleverness behind that. And he also, of course, consulted for the CIA and the overthrow of uh, the Guatemalan government. But when, well, when you think about that campaign, uh, I don't know if we knew, uh, we certainly didn't know all the dangers associated with smoking. Um, and um, But the thing is, is that when you have bright people working on these things, you're going to get uh, some potentially evil things that come out of it. That's not the crime. The crime is this. Once you recognize that they're evil and you continue to do it, that's the real crime. So Mm. you want people to explore. You want people to be creative. You want them to come up with these things. But when you discover that they are having these deleterious and negative effects, you have to do something about it. So I don't want to beat people up for Mm. coming up like we the atom bomb you know that was some creativity and clearly um, yeah. that sort of thing can be uh, hugely destructive you ever read or see any documentaries about richard Feynman? no hey check him out sometime yeah. he, he was a physicist who was very important in the the mathematics behind the atom bomb and when it was dropped he basically dropped out of scientific research. He ended up back at Caltech, but doing his whole life changed because of what you said. He recognized, like, wait a minute, I was, that was theory. I was doing, you know, problems on a blackboard, figuring out interesting shit. I didn't know this was going to happen. Anyway, the Edward Bernays, mm-hmm. just to wrap that up, his uncle was Sigmund Freud. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, have you done any work with maps? You know them? Uh, I know Rick. I know Rick, Rick Dublin. Yeah. Um, I haven't done any work directly with Rick, but we certainly, uh, when I started studying MDMA, we talked a lot. I think I even cited his IND for uh, uh, in order to get FDA approval. So I cited some of the data that he had collected. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I met Rick in like 97 or something like that. I was... I was in grad school, and um, you know, based upon my own experience, I was very suspicious. Well, I should say I was very um, uh, respectful of the the educational power of hallucinogens. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you just point out something that's really important, and we should talk about um, one of the things about not only hallucinogens, just drugs in general, the people who use drugs should be equally respectful of yeah. any drug, whether it's marijuana or whether it's LSD. Um, because if you are respectful, it increases the likelihood that you'll have a safe, uh, more pleasant journey, as opposed yeah. to people who are disrespectful and don't understand that these are potentially powerful psychoactive substances. And that's one of the main things I'm trying to get out to the public. It's like drug effects are predictable. It's not the stuff that people have told you that they're unpredictable, that's just simply not true. And if they're predictable, that means we can keep people safe. Mm-hmm. But in order to keep people safe, we have to acknowledge that people are actually using them, and then we give them tools to keep them safe. Like, start off with low doses if you are a new user. Make sure you um, are in a comfortable setting if you are a new user. All of these sorts of things we With know. people you trust. With people and you who trust. know what they're doing. Exactly. Yeah. All of those sorts of things is things that we fail to do in drug education, public health education surrounding drugs. And sexuality. 
Well, that's your area, and so you yeah. know that better than me. Yeah, I, I was talking with, with some, I think it was with Betty Dotson, who I mentioned, you know, I interviewed recently, and we were talking about um, how bizarre it is that, in, and I think she mentioned drugs, too, or maybe I mentioned that I was going to be speaking with you, but in any case, the similarities are striking, right? Like, you look at, we've got these huge educational institutions where, where older people with experience teach younger people. Like how to deal with, you know, getting through life, how to deal with getting a job, how to be a doctor, how to, you know, be a lawyer, how to drive, how to do it. But there are two areas where we don't teach kids how to live sex and their use of drugs. And uh, Stanton Peel, you know, know I think. Yeah. So he makes that argument a lot. Like in Europe, Southern Europe, of course, kids drink. Everybody drinks alcohol, wine with dinner and so on. But it's a structured respectful, um, accepting introduction to the use of alcohol as opposed to here where you go off to college and just join a frat and drink till you puke. And that like how, and same thing with sex. If, if, if we taught kids to drive the way we don't teach them about sex, it would just be like, here's the keys, you know, you go out with a friend and, you know, good luck to you. Yeah. I mean, we even teach kids how to use guns safely in, in, in <laughs> when point. we go out west and, and yeah. cultures where people hunt yeah. and so forth kids are respectful of guns right. they know how to do it you don't see mass murders and these crazy things that we sometimes see uh, that, that's a rare sort of event but yeah. uh, even guns we teach people how to use safely and right. we should be t- teaching people how to use safe uh, how to use these things safely so yeah so what's what is it that makes American culture unable or unwilling to acknowledge that drugs are always part of human life? Well, one of the things that drugs do that um, the people who are in charge in society, the dominant culture, uh, Drugs are excellent scapegoats to vilify groups that we don't care for, groups okay. that we don't like. Um, so, too, is uh, deviant sexual behavior. We can do it that way. If, if you have this tool to vilify this group, you can vilify them without acting as if you're racist or something of that nature. Right. Because it's not so much the group. We don't hate all of you. Right. It's just those those folks who are engaging in this behavior. The Mexicans who were smoking marijuana in but the 30s. Mexican and also black. It was a, it was a whole... Thing, yeah, yeah. In, in the South, it was huge in terms of black people using marijuana and right. the Mexicans. Yeah, cocaine in the early 1900s. Even though uh, large numbers of people in the society were using cocaine, uh, when black people started using it, they said, well, they're doing it They're doing a different form. Mm. They're snorting it. Well, we didn't ever snort it. And when you snort it, uh-huh. then you get crazy um, yeah because so the, the the main the dominant culture was using it in elixirs they and were things. using elixirs they were also even injecting it oh re- not intravenous but they were injecting it freud used cocaine oh, yeah. he? a lot Freud yeah. used cocaine he wrote a paper i think in 1886 called uber coca or on coca yeah um uh lauding the drug right um, and it's an ex- it can certainly be an excellent tool for a wide range of things. It's great for investment banking. Well, uh, <laughs> if you know what you're doing, it's great. It's, it's a, it could be a good drug because y- you are awake. It keeps you stimulated. Yeah. Um, but 
it doesn't disrupt your sleep as much. So you can mm. do your thing in the daytime or in early evening party and go to yeah. sleep. That's yeah. different from the amphetamines. The amphetamines will dramatically disrupt your sleep. Right. So um, cocaine could be could be an excellent tool for a variety of things. So too can the amphetamine. So too can the opiates. But you have to know what the limitations are with those drugs as well. Yeah, yeah, it's true. I, I remember how shocked I was when I first learned that it was possible to use heroin in a way that would not, that there were old heroin users. But the key was that they were getting clean predictable heroin, you know, heroin, the dosage wasn't shifting all the time because it was more cut or less cut or cut with some amphetamines or with something they didn't know. Nobody cuts heroin amphetamine. Yeah, well, what do they cut it with? Um, I, I don't know, but they wouldn't be cut with anything really psychoactive. That would be stupid. Yeah. I mean, if you're a drug dealer, when you can make money off amphetamines, why the hell would you cut heroin <laughs> right. with amphetamine? Right. But you right. hear this kind of crap in society. Yeah, and strychnine yeah. and LSD and things like that. You hear, first of all, if you're selling Selling drugs, on the one hand, you're not going to cut your drugs with something that will cause your user immediate harm, like strychnine or something of that nature, or at doses that will do that because you have no more customers. If you have something like um, something that's pharmacologically similar but cheap, you can cut it. You like with cocaine these days, I think is being cut with levamisole. That uh-huh. is a drug that is used in animal deworm. It's an animal dewormer, and there the negative effect of that is too much, decreases white blood cells, and you get more susceptible to infections. Yeah. Now it has some slight stimulant properties, and so you don't have to use as much cocaine. Right. But it's dirt cheap, so people some people had access to it, so they would cut their drug with it. Right. Um, but you wouldn't cut cocaine with an amphetamine. What about MDMA? Is that being cut with amphetamines? Uh, MDMA on the street, what what you have in MDMA ranges from a wide range of things because uh, MDMA and amphetamines, they are similar. The chemical structure almost identical. If you have access to cheap amphetamines, you might put some of that in there because MDMA contains ca- everything from caffeine to amphetamine, yeah. a wide range of things. Yeah, we should we should be clear. We're talking about ecstasy. We're talking MDMA about ecstasy. It right. is actually MDMA. That's right. Yeah, that's I mean, right. that's the, that's the crystalline Sasha Shulgin that's right. rediscovered. Exactly. Yeah. Have you ever met Sasha Shulgin, by the way? Never met him. Ever, you know, I've done a number of interviews with people who have, and everybody says you should meet Sasha. Yeah. Now, uh, for my studies, I get my MDMA from Sasha's student, Dave Nichols. I don't uh, know if you know Dave. Yeah, I think he's yeah. associated with MAPS as well. Yeah, Dave Yeah, Dave has been around for a long time. Yeah. He's yeah. now retired, I think. He was at Purdue University. So MAPS, by the way, we keep mentioning, I should say, is a multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies, MAPS.org. And what they do is they support they're actually sort of like the epicenter of campaigns to bring uh, currently illegal drugs into use, uh, both in research and for some clinical practice, uh, MDMA. For example, I have a friend in Spain who did his PhD work on um, using MDMA in psychotherapeutic interventions with women who'd suffered from sexual trauma and who didn't respond to any other therapeutic protocol. And he had great results until he did an interview and uh, the interview was published and then the whole thing was shut down. Even though he had all the government approval, everything was cool. But anyway, so Rick Doblin maps are fantastic. And if you're, if you're rich and don't know what to do with your money, 
Maps would be happy to. Uh, <laughs> you can support some real culture-changing research there. Um, you know, we were talking about what it is about American society that stops us from acknowledging that you know teenagers have sex and use drugs, and if, you know everybody has sex and uses drugs uh, to some extent. Um, and I agree with you that a lot of it is um, racism, classism, uh, a way of manipulating the population and, and demonizing groups and all that. Certainly Harry Anslinger, uh, you know, when the prohibition – I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you're much more knowledgeable about this than I am. But my understanding was that when prohibition was repealed – and uh, Anslinger was the head of what the, the drug enforcement the Bureau of Narcotics. Bureau of Narcotics, right? And then twenty nine thirty one, somewhere in there. Uh, from nineteen thirty two to nineteen sixty two. Thirty two. Okay. So rather than just phase out that government agency, which is what was going to happen, because all they were doing was fighting alcohol, he had to find a new war to fight. And we find that everywhere. I mean, look at what's happened. They're about to bomb Syria. You know, it's like, hey, let's, you know, move on. What are we going to do? You know, we got to keep those bomb factories running. You know, my buddy owns the bomb factory and GE wants to make more of these bombers. Same thing with the war on drugs. I mean, the war on everything is kind of follows the same pattern. Yeah. uh, As we know, finance is is an important motivator for behavior, of course. And Harry Anslinger was no exception. And even today, law enforcement, the treatment industry, all of these people, the researchers, all of us, we have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. Mm -hmm. Because if we keep the war on drugs going, our budgets increase. Um, So when people say things like, no more jails instead instead they should go to treatment that's a that's also equally uh problematic because when you look at these facts 80 to 90 percent of the people who use these psychoactive drugs don't need treatment right why are you sending them to treatment i I don't understand that but the treatment industry has a tremendous investment um um, uh, to make sure that folks um go to treatment and so to do the jailers as we all know law enforcement those yeah. sort of people yeah yeah it's it's amazing although again i'm i don't you know all these things make sense and 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 i i agree they're all uh, very important parts of the question but i can't help thinking some of it also just goes back to puritan you know because other you know the economics are the same in other countries right and and yet Portugal, you know, just legalized all drugs. Fuck it. Everything's legal. They, decri- they decriminalize. Make sure that you understand uh, that distinction. Point. People, uh, the major th- distinction is that alcohol is legal in this country as well as most countries. Um, uh, you can sell it. You can possess it without fear of any penalties. Decriminalization means that you can't sell it. It's still illegal to sell it. Oh, okay. And if you get caught possessing it, uh, it's treated more like a traffic violation right. rather than a criminal offense. Right. Uh, and that's the major problem we all have. Yeah. Like, I live in Spain. We were talking earlier. I've been there for 22 years Spanish or something. Spanish are not very good on drugs, are they? Well, it. They have some awful researchers in this area yeah. in terms of perpetuating the myths the myths. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, who was I thinking of? Ricard. He's not Spanish, is he? The guy at um, uh, Johns Hopkins who published that George false. Ricardi. Yeah, a Ricardi. Is that? Is he Spanish? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. He certainly was schooled here in the United uh, States. Okay. So. Yeah. Yeah. He published that research. Uh, 
purporting to show that MDMA caused all sorts of neuronal damage, and that turned out he wasn't even using MDMA. He was using yeah, amphetamines. But understand that George had a, he has a career, a history. He has a number of papers showing that MDMA caused toxicity, in which he did use MDMA. Mm. And so the public is also fooled by that kind of thing, because then when you say, well, what, what are the doses that you used in those studies? Right. And the doses are excessive, and yeah. they're in ranges that are not relevant to humans. That's number one. But he did have a history of showing this sort of stuff using the right drug. But the real question is, did you use doses that was relevant to the human condition? Um, No. And so the study in which he showed, uh, the the one that you referred to, the science paper that was retracted ultimately, um, he had the wrong drug is what was claimed. But the real question became, okay, we know you had the wrong drug. How about doing the same study because he lowered the doses because he was responding to my uh, critique? Oh, really? Uh, well, not me personally, but uh, uh, me, I, me along with other right, people. Right, right. Uh, so the question is, you have the wrong drug. Why not redo the study with, with the right dose, right drug? And I'm sure they did, but they never found the extensive damage what, what they reported. And so they never reported it. That's another hugely undiscussed problem with scientific research, that when you don't – that you're not required to, to report or to publish negative results. So you don't get the result, and there's silence, you know? Exactly. exactly yeah. Right. So the research is done using realistic uh, dosages of, you know, the purport, that uh, correspond to the dosages that people actually use in real life right now at Burning Man, and you get no, no damage, and you don't say anything, and you don't have to say anything. Yeah, that's right. And nobody's going to pay you to find that result. They're going to pay you to find the opposite result. Right, but as scientists, you know, one of the things that has changed over, even when I was trained back in the early 90s in neuroscience, uh, I was trained that if you have a hypothesis, uh, great. Now you have to design sets of studies to disprove your hypothesis. Right. Falsifiable. Exactly. Yeah. These days, that's not the case. What people are reporting, they're finding, uh, they're saying things such as, well, I use diverse techniques and I have convergent findings. I mean, you can find the findings that you want in a wide range of areas, but the real key is, did you try to disprove your hypothesis? If you haven't done that, well, you haven't completed your study your course right. of study right. and i think that as a as a body as a scientific body we need to make sure that people are doing that so do you think the standard of scientific investigation has declined it certainly has changed and when we get new sexy techniques like neural imaging uh this may happen early on when you get new techniques and people are so enamored with the technique that they forget the most important tool is the human brain, and they forget to think about how to really design studies that will be that will stand the test of time. So over time, as these techniques become older, I think we'll start having more um, uh, critical questions being asked of these techniques. Yeah, yeah. It's in, you're talking about neuroimaging. It, it's it's so interesting how how powerful metaphor is in investigating the brain and, you know, the mind. Uh, You know, these days it's all, uh, people are all talking about hardwiring. 
you know, as if the brain has RAM and ROM and, you know, it's a computer. And not so long ago, the brain was, uh, you know, a steam engine or, you know, whatever. It's, you know, you know, a series of valves. I mean, it's like whatever the dominant paradigm is. And that also shapes the thinking, just like language determines concepts that are available to exactly us. Exactly right. That's yeah, it's right. it's a fascinating. But what, so tell us what what are the main foci of your research? What what are you really getting uh, into these days? These days, I've been primarily focused on methamphetamine and uh, its effects on the brain, cognitive functioning. Mm. Um, are, you, are you consulting on bad on uh, what is it Breaking Bad? Yeah. Uh, you know I. Early on, when the show was initially when it initially came out, people talked uh, about it to me. So I went out and I bought like the series. Uh-huh. I watched like the first series and couldn't watch that crap. I couldn't uh, watch that. It's too violent. No, it's, it perpetuates myths about uh-huh. drugs, and people really like that show, and that's fine. But it, it's not reality. And but people think that they have reality when they have shows like that. They have The Wire. I mean, I love The Wire, mm. but. That's not reality, and people think that that's reality. How does the wire differ from from what you see as reality? Um, so the wire oftentimes is shown from a white perspective. I mean, like, what's his name? And McNulty is like the hero. Right. Um, I can't get into that sort of thing. Right. I, I, it's anyway. I don't want to talk too badly about the wire because it <laughs> is one of the better shows that yeah. we have on TV. But it has its biased perspective sure. and. Um, it frustrates me as being a conscious black person in this society. Hmm. Yeah, well, especially the first season, which is about the drug situation yeah. in Baltimore, is very much the predominantly white cops and the predominantly well, black drug users. Check and this so out. So. McNulty is so flawed. Yeah. But he's the hero, you know, and... Um, it's okay to be flawed, but do we have black characters so flawed like that and they're the hero? Well, when you say Stringer Bell was sort of a, a hero, you know? He died, right? He's, yeah. 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 He was killed. Well, you know, like season seven, I think. I mean, he, he Or five. It only did five. They only did five seasons. They did five. Yeah. But I, I think it was three. But I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I mean, I remember he and the other guy, his buddy who went to jail, and then Stringer decided to go legit. And he's like, you know, we got to yeah. diversify. And, you right. know, he went to night school. And, and he was sleeping with his friend's girlfriend and that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But McNulty was doing that, too, right? Yeah, McNulty yeah. was sleeping with everybody's yeah. girlfriend. But McNulty solved all the problems. He always Except solved his own, yeah. But he yeah. always solved the crimes and the problems. Yeah. Yeah, although some of them kept getting away. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, hey, I'm white, so, you know, I, I obviously looked at it from my white perspective. Look, I, I think that The Wire was one of the best TV shows that has come out. I mean, I actually watched that, whereas I can't watch Breaking Bad. But my point is, is that... I, I, you know, I can't be too laudatory about it. Yeah. But. Well, it would be interesting. You know, the reason I asked if you were consulting, it'd be interesting. You know, like for The Wire, I know they hired a lot of the, the actors who were living on the streets in Baltimore, right. you know, and they were like right. to, to bring some reality, as much reality as possible. Well, OK, let's check this out. Yeah. All right. So when we think about people's reality, uh, one of the things that... Um, I 
I like to include people's reality, but I know that they're not the most critical people. Like people, um, they are not experts of behavior just because they behave. But people, um, for example, we will take... If you ask black people about racism in the United States, and you ask, many of them say it still exists, and, but oftentimes that's discounted by white America when they talk about racism. But if you ask them about their drugs and how horrible drugs are, that's accepted uncritically. So it all depends what domain you're talking about. Yeah. You know, so it's like if it fits my dominant mainstream narrative, right. yeah, I'll accept it and I'll right. accept you as an expert, right. even though you're not. Yeah. And you and, and and I won't even accept what you have to say in these other right. domains. Yeah. Like white people almost never accept black people's uh, interpretation of race and racism in this country. Right. No matter how well educated you are. So um, it's frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah, it's kind of it mimics what we were just saying about scientific research. So a camera crew goes to Baltimore and interviews a bunch of black people on the street, and they the, some of the black people say what they want to hear. Those are the people who are on TV. Absolutely, the people don't say what they want to hear. You never see Absolutely. them. Absolutely, yeah. So Absolutely. it's it's I, you know just to be topical. If you uh, if you saw the movie The Butler in this area, have you, you heard no, of the movie? I've heard of it. I haven't seen uh, it. The Butler, for example, he was invited to the. Uh, Reagan White House to have a, a st- uh, state dinner. Right. Um, and so in order to make sure you have some black people at the state dinner, you know, with all due respect with the butler, he worked hard. He was a good man and those sorts of things. But probably not the person that should have been at the state dinner when right. you have right. these thoughtful black people who have paid all kinds of dues at the yeah. highest level in the society. Right. And it's pretty caused, obviously r- symbolic. Right. Right. Obviously, yeah. even to the butler who right. caused it caused him a lot of dissonance. But that is the kind of thing that happens today yeah. in society. And that's the thing that happens on shows like The Wire. And that is, it's frustrating. If you really yeah. want to know about drugs, how about you ask somebody who actually have studied it, know it, and uh, may have a viewpoint that's conflicting with your own. Right. But that doesn't happen. Right. I hear you. That's, yeah, that's everywhere. And that must be something you run up against you know a lot in your career professionally you know you're invited to conferences i mean i i don't i certainly not in a symbolic sense because you've you know you've got the education you've got the research you've got the publications and all that stuff but you know sometimes you must well i don't want to put words in your mouth do you feel like they're expecting, oh, and here's Carl Hart with the black perspective, or you know, are you? I, I don't mind um, that because I'm I'm able to, to to say my limitations. I don't speak for everyone. I'm able to say that. Right. Uh, but I just like to be included when we have discussions on drugs because I actually know something about right. drugs. Um, so I don't yeah. mind being there, and I know my limitations, and I am not too grandiose to think that I speak for everyone. That's yeah. not that's not it. But please don't have some person up there who is, for example, a rapper talking about crack cocaine and the, uh, and the mid-1980s yeah. and how yeah. awful it was or whatever they say. It's like, what experience, what evidence yeah. does this person have? Right. Whether being famous and being black doesn't make you an exactly. expert on... Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that's the major concern. Yeah. Well, anyway, I, I sort of cut you off. By the way, this, this podcast is called Tangentially Speaking, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think you're getting an idea why. <laughs> anyway, so you're focused on methamphetamine, which is... 
I, I consider myself something of a, a certainly not an expert, but a well-traveled uh, amateur as far as drugs go. I spent a lot of my 20s and 30s, you know, with a when in Rome attitude, and I traveled all over the world. So I've done ayahuasca in Brazil and peyote in Mexico and, you know, all this. Um, but methamphetamines has never... Maybe maybe it was an age thing, but it just never appealed to me as an idea. So I really don't know anything about it. I mean, my impression is you'll probably, you know, it's a mainstream impression. It's uh, poor, primarily white, rural Americans. Is is that? Well, you, you, you're familiar with Adderall, right? Adderall, what is Adderall? Is, yeah, I've heard the Adderall name. Adderall is an attention deficit disorder drug. Oh, okay, right. Uh, is it a Ritalin? It's similar? Ritalin is not an amphetamine, but it's a stimulant. Uh, okay. um, amphetamines are actually better than uh, Ritalin in terms of some of these effects uh-huh. that we're talking about. So Adderall is prescribed to a lot of college students, young people, mainstream. Um, it's the same drug as methamphetamine. Oh, really? Essentially. And Adderall is yeah. like a study thing. You stay up all night exactly. studying. Okay. Exactly. Right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, so amphetamine methamphetamine does the same thing right uh but the vilified illicit methamphetamine you're right it's associated with quote-unquote tractor trailer trash right um it's it's associated with gay populations again uh, despised groups right but it's the same drug as the one that we prescribe and not only that methamphetamine is legal by prescription you can use that huh. to treat attention deficit disorders you can use it to decrease weight in the short term so uh, when you say it never appealed to you, if you've ever taken a stimulant, caffeine, yeah. whatever, um, amphetamines are excellent for keeping people awake, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so some people like cocaine because of the euphoric feelings that they get from that drug and being alert. Amphetamine does the same thing, excepting that it does it for longer periods of time. Is it true that methamphetamine causes a dental decay and all that kind of stuff? So I wrote a paper about this, published a critical review in 2012 in a journal called Neuropsychopharmacology. Uh, there is no evidence to show that. You know, Meth mouth is a myth. Meth mouth is a myth if you want evidence, right. if, if, if you need evidence to support it. There's, there's no foundations and evidence in that claim. So there's no, like, uh, circulatory there issue? There is. Or, I'm, oh, okay. I'm going to explain. One of the things that methamphetamine does is that it decreases uh, salivary flow in the uh, mouth. okay. But um, so to do... All of the anti, uh, the, all of the popular anti-depressant uh, medications, uh, right, right. Um, tobacco, as you point out, all of these. I was drugs, thinking marijuana, yeah, you know, cotton mouth. Yeah, yeah. But all of these drugs do that. Yeah. But you don't have this myth associated with these drugs, right? Like you don't have people saying Prozac mouth or something of that nature. <laughs> yeah. um, well, that it, now, yeah, it's not that people who do methamphetamine don't have some dental problems. Maybe they do. Yeah. But it has less to do with the pharmacology of the drug and more with the lifestyle. And this is the thing that I'm trying to do in my book, separate myth, fact, fact from fact and that sort of thing. And trying to help people to think about this thing more critically. Because when we do, we'll see that the problems that people have that we attribute to drugs are really, they're actually problems that they had before drugs. And they're problems that that we can actually address. And a lot of those problems are related to 
Poverty. Poverty, lack of skills, lack of uh, ability uh, uh, to be responsible, a wide range of things that we can correct right. with some training, uh, with some effort. But it's a lot easier for politicians to just to go after the drug because if you just go after the drug, then now you can provide money, funds for people who voted for you in large numbers, who have strong lobby lobby constituents like law enforcement, like the Prison Guard Association, all of those kind of groups, as opposed to investing some money into communities, right. uh, investing money into programs to teach people responsibilities, basic things that will make us better as a society. It's, it's so fucked up, man. It's like you attack the symptom. Because you can make money attacking the symptom. And you don't attack the problem because if you solve the problem, then the money tree stops. It all dries up. So the whole point is not really to solve the problem. Not unless the problem affects people who look like you and you really care about. Your kids. Yeah, just like right. Vietnam didn't become a problem right. until white right. middle-aged, middle like class Like I kids said, were... that's, that's the major thing here when we think about drugs and drug policy. Uh, drugs are excellent tools to scapegoat groups we don't care about. Right. Yeah. So if these groups were people we care about, things would change. <laughs> yeah. Primarily, well, perfect example of that is the sentencing discrepancy between powder coke and crack coke. Exactly the same drug. I mean, as as similar as espresso and drip coffee. You know, it's just two different forms of exactly the same thing. Well, it's like taking marijuana via smoking it or taking it in a brownie. Right. You know, so it's like yeah. you're going to punish people more harshly for smoking marijuana than those who take it. In <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Very much more harshly. And what did they do? They they dropped it down recently to 15 to 1 or something or so 18 to 1? In 86, it was 100 to 1. You punish crack cocaine 100 times more harshly than powder in 2010 president obama signed legislation to make it 18 to 1 18 to 1 now 18 yeah. to 1 still isn't justified there still and it's be, not retroactive it's not retroactive all these people in prison for life for crack cocaine are not getting their sentences reduced yeah they didn't go to prison for life but they went to prison for extended periods of time yeah. right um so one of the things that you might be aware of um, the attorney general about two three weeks ago came yeah. out and said that our drug policy was flawed and yeah. he essentially said it was uh, uh caused racial discrimination or it was uh, uh um enforced in a way that was racist yeah he said, uh, well, he said i don't know did he say race he said it, it affected disproportionately affected some communities no, you're absolutely right. They're they're very careful in their language, but <laughs> yeah. what it means when you operationalize it is racist. Yeah. Uh, I think what the president says is that the applications of our laws have had discriminatory effects. So right. they say things like that, but that's part of the problem in this society is that we are not honest and we don't call a spade a spade. So even though you have a black president and a black attorney general, they can't be honest about racism in the society that tells us something that really tells us something and um, i don't get that and i don't get the fact that the society isn't outraged by that um is the society outraged by it they're not i don't get the fact that they are not outraged by it. no no but i mean uh, are they not i mean are, in other words it, yeah, I, I don't understand why more people aren't in the street for a lot of things, you know, from the whole bullshit in Wall Street to, you know, the, every, people losing their homes. I mean, but uh, are 
I guess what I'm trying to ask you is, you know, are the people most affected by these things? And what we're talking about right now is is this disproportionately harsh enforcement of ridiculous drug laws that put black mostly black men in jail right i don't remember the stats but it's like half the men in jail are black but only 14 percent of the population yeah so black men only make up five percent of the population they make up 35 percent of the prison population that's it okay yeah i mean so it, you know it's pretty obviously a way to get black men in prison you know yeah, but the thing is is that Here's the catch. Uh, we're looking for the person in the white sheet and the burning cl- cross. Right. That doesn't exist anymore. Right. So people will say it, to that statement that you just made is that the laws were not designed to be to go after black men specifically. And they are absolutely right. They are right. The laws were not because when you look at who participated in making the crafting of these laws, the black Congressional caucus supported these laws, like 90% of them supported Yeah, but these. didn't they support it for the same reason that Obama and Eric Holder aren't allowed to say that this shit's racist? What? W- isn't no, it, no, you no, know? No, hold on. I'm okay. here so I can actually answer this. So, so uh, <laughs> they supported it because they, too, believed in the ni- mid-1980s that cocaine, crack cocaine specifically, were destroying the black community. They uh, they actually believed it because they saw the same images as white America. And so as politicians, you must act. And that's okay to make mistakes. We all do. I don't think people should be vilified for that. But the problem becomes, like I said, the laws weren't designed to go after them specifically. The problem becomes when you actually see that the laws are having these racially discriminatory effects and you do nothing about it. And that's what the society, that's the thing that concerns me so much about the intellectual dishonesty from the highest levels in government all the way down. Nobody has just, if you're going to solve a problem, you have to put the chips on the table and you can't be worried about offending white people, black people, or anybody. If you want to solve the problem, everything's open for discussion. And in this country, the president can't even talk about race because the right pounds on him and he actually cares about that. I would not even care about about that because they are disingenu- disingenuous and they don't really care about solving the problem. Right. So they don't deserve to be heard. Um, mm. But yet we act as if they do deserve to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean that that whole cycle that we're talking about relates back to what we were saying earlier about uh, Edward Bernays and the you've come a long way baby and you know the whole thing i mean i see this as a recurring theme for you and and you know it's obviously uh, it's a very evolved perspective you have, which is more compassionate, I think, than mine is. I, I'm just sort of, I just get pissed off and say they're all full of shit. But you're, you're saying, you know, maybe they're full of shit without knowing it. But once they know they're full of shit, is when you know it becomes a real issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I just know too that I make mistakes, yeah. and I will continue to make mistakes. And I certainly don't want people to disregard me because I made a mistake. Because I can still make a contribution if I am genuinely interested and I am being genuine about my participation. But in the case of the right wing and many of the Republicans, it's dis- it's disingenuous. They don't deserve yeah. to be at the table. Not all, yeah. uh, but the, certainly the pundits. Those guys don't deserve to be well, at the Well, Fox table. News is, I mean, the whole Fox News from its inception 
didn't even pretend to be uh, authentic. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's like the whole thing is like, all right, here's what we're going to do, right? We're just going to feed this right-wing media frenzy because there's obviously an appetite for it. You know, and that, that, I mean, in a way, that gets back to, you know, whether or not these laws were crafted to get black men into prison. Uh, in a way, it's kind of like, you know, the Hollywood would say, well, we just give the audience what they want. And, you know, okay, if these blockbuster movies sell, we'll just make more of them, right? And so you might say the first laws may or may not have been racially based, although, you know, going back to Anslinger, they were, you know, at least on some level. But the fact that, hey, the fact that, you know, the way this is set up is is directing a lot of... Uh, disenfranchised black men in you know out of mainstream society they can't vote anymore they can't participate they you know they get cut off from they can be student legally loans. discriminated against right. That's right like well maybe we didn't set it up for that but it's working that way and you know we're all happy sitting around this table in washington dc so you know why not do it do it make it bigger you know put more money toward it so in a way it's almost like you know, I admire your your nuanced uh, perspective, but in a way, it's almost like it doesn't matter what they intended. You know what I mean? Because it, because it takes on its own energy, it becomes its own organism. That's right. Frankenstein, That's like right. you went Frank. Don't worry about robots coming back. Like they're already here. You know, institutions are living things like corporations, and they don't. You know, they have no human motivations or shame or guilt. No, no, you're absolutely right. But you're you're point about hollywood right they're they're saying we're giving the people like what they want and so we're just responding to that hollywood versus washington or versus our lawmakers they have different responsibilities our lawmakers they're not there to respond to um uh, uh, um uh a paying public if you will they are there to lead too well although you know votes Right. That's right. I mean, aren't votes like tickets, you know, well, to the I'm, movies? I am with you. You're absolutely right because it certainly has become what you are, what you have uh, laid out, uh, because you have to uh, get votes. But what you also have the responsibility to lead as well, and sometimes you have to uh, do what's unpopular. Abraham Lincoln signed a, 150 years ago, actually right. signed a proclamation. Now that wasn't popular. But he had to lead and think yeah. about where this goes in terms how does how will this how will history judge him? Yeah. And as a politician you have to think about that as well, right? And that's what we're sorely lacking in political leaders today. Yeah. And I might say in science oh. and in media, right? Because what we're talking about, and maybe this is a good way to wrap this up because this is where we started, transcending the game you're in. That's right. Right. That's right. So you're in politics, <clears throat> Obama. You got there. Right. You got a second term. I mean, That's you right. you got there so much. You're never going to run for anything else. Now do the shit, man. Do it. Because if you don't, you're going to feel like shit the rest of your life, you know, because this is it. You got I mean, talk about an well, opportunity. We also started off talking about like in science, we think about before tenure. People have been behaving in such a way. They've been reinforced to behave a certain way yeah. for so long. Yeah. They don't have any other behaviors yeah. the same is true with our political yeah. leaders like obama and those sort of things so if we expect the person to behave differently when they have never behaved that way 
we're probably setting ourselves up for disappointment. And that's the thing. I mean, if they had behaved that way, they would have attracted the antibodies and been eliminated from the system a long time ago. Well, I'm still in the system. Yeah. And so, so how the hell did you do that, man? Well, I mean, one of the things, like <laughs> I said, you have to make sure you have these multiple sort of cultures, multiple yeah. uh, areas in which you are living, interacting, and so forth. And um, so I have to go back to various communities, and they, have, they ask me the tough question. And I have to answer those questions. Black communities, white communities, all of these, they have different interests. And one of the things I have to do is be have some integrity about what I'm doing. You obviously feel a lot of personal, I don't know if, if the phrase survivor guilt is appropriate. If you read the book, there's a, in High Price, there's a lot of that. Absolutely. Right. I mean, I haven't read the book, yeah. but I've read a bit about you and I've seen some interviews and... Uh, yeah, I mean, you obviously feel a personal responsibility to do something with the opportunity you've got now. The- Absolutely, because now we're 50 years removed from the March on Washington, as right. you know, and they're celebrating that now. So when we think about the efforts of people who came before me and the, the sort of sacrifices they made, it seems irresponsible for me not to acknowledge that in some real meaningful way. The thing is, is though, it's not only me. This is the thing that disturbs me about this society. People don't ask that of white people in this society. You know, they ask it of me. For example, I do interviews and they say, are you going back to the community and talking to kids? Are you kidding me? You know, I'm trying to talk to your legislators. I'm trying to train the scientists so they can be better. Uh, do you ask this of white scientists? Why don't right. we ask these questions of white people that right. people ask of me? Right. That's the real problem in this society. Yeah. Yeah, and it's another way of, of distancing ourselves from the problem. Absolutely. Like, oh, the black community, that's your problem. Exactly. That's not my problem. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And many of us have participated in that by saying, yeah, I'm going back, I'm doing... Yeah. It's like, yeah. as opposed to calling out the stupidity of the question. You know, I think about that every time somebody refers to Obama as the first black president. Yeah. It's like, he's not... You know, we talked before I turned on the recorder, we were talking with Casilda, who's 38% African, we just right. found out recently. Right. It's like, you know, I know it, it, and again, it's one of these things where we we use the simplest language because it's too complicated, and you get off in tangents and stuff. But he's not a black president. He's a half black, half white president. He's, you know, he's got all these interesting influences that make him so fascinating. And to just call him a black president feeds into the whole Sarah Palin, you know, sort of redneck right wing, you know, demonization vibe as well. Like the dude was raised by you know in Nebraska or someplace you know um, Kansas. Uh, Hawaii. His mom was raised right, in but his Kansas. grandparents. Yeah, yeah can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it was raised by the grandparents for a while. Oh, yeah, I, that's I, right. You know, his mom went, went off to right. yeah. Right. Um, anyway, so it's just like life is so uh, you know nuanced and and multi layered and fascinating, and to reduce all this shit down to literally black and white in this case is no. You're right. Uh, our sort of uh, thinking about race is overly 
simplistic. Uh, Obama has black features, and the most conspicuous feature is his skin color. Yeah. And so, therefore, he's black. Yeah. And that, that's yeah. how we see it in this society. So when people yeah. say, "You, well, how do you identify? It really doesn't matter. Yeah. It's how the society identifies you. Right. But you, you're right. You laid out all those nuances that are important. You say, well, I'm not even sure if he was raised like black people in this country. Absolutely. Well, you read, you've probably read his uh, Dreams uh, of My Father. Of my father. Yeah. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. You laid it out. Um, but that's too complicated for this society. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, listen, thank you for making time for this. I know you're, you're you very busy. It's a, it's a, what is it, a Sunday, Sunday. afternoon. You, right. you're, you're working on a Sunday. Work all around the clock, man. That's how you stay ahead of the game. That's it. That's right. it. All right. Thank you very much, Carl Hart. Uh, do you have a, a web page to send people to? Or? High Price, the book. Okay. Com. And that's just out uh, June, right? Last month it came Last, out? Uh, or, June. Or two June, months ago. June. We're in August right. now. Yeah. And you can hit me up on Twitter, uh, Dr. Carl Hart. That's D-R, uh, Carl Hart. Yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Thank All you. Right. All right, that's it. If you've um, stuck around to the end like this, you you enjoyed it. I'm, I'm I hope, and you're not like uh, stuck somewhere where you couldn't get the headphones off your head. Uh, if you uh, want to know more about uh, Carl, you can follow him on Twitter at Dr. Carl Hart, D-R, Carl, C-A-R-L, Hart, H-A-R-T. You can get his book, High Price, which is uh, on Amazon. You can also just uh, you know Google High Price, Carl Hart, whatever. He's got a site devoted to the book. I was looking at the uh, the reviews on Amazon.com, and people love this book. I, I haven't read it yet. I'm sorry to say, uh, but I'm going to, I, I don't, you know, I'm, when I'm working on a book, it's like, I read what I need to read and that takes up all my time and reading for pleasure sort of gets pushed away, unfortunately, but, uh, I'm going to read Carl's book cause I was so impressed by him. I didn't say this in the intro, but there was a moment in the interview where I saw how serious he was, how passionate he was, and that this was not a job he's talking about. This is, this is his life. This is, this, this is his whole life. This is what matters to him. And, uh, it's sort of the fulcrum on which everything else pivots. And, uh, I met his wife and his kid later, beautiful people, both of them fantastic. And, uh, and I was very impressed by him as a man, I got to say. Um, anyway, I guess I've made that clear by now. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at Chris Ryan PhD. Uh, my website again, Christopher Ryan PH, or, what, Chris Ryan PhD.com. And uh, Squarespace, check it out. It's cool. It works. It's cheap. It's efficient. It's uh, everything you want in uh, web design. Do it yourself. Very cool. All right. See you next time. Thanks for listening. I'll play you out with Carsey Blanton's Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you ever
Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.